But the reality is, you know, this is our job. <laughs> when we do it, uh, we get a pat on the back. When whistleblowers come forward and um, articulate the same concerns, you know, they often get retaliated against. Corporate fraud works best in the shadows, behind corporate walls. How does the government bring these wrongdoers to justice? Whistleblowers. These are the stories of those who risk their careers to shine a light on allegations of fraud. Today on Fraud in America. All right, welcome to this episode of Fraud in America. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into a case that's been on our radar for quite a while. This case settled last year, uh, but for a lot of reasons you'll see uh, as we get going here today, this case resonates with a lot of us uh, because it signals perhaps the new trend in settlements, uh, as we'll talk about today with our two guests, Dan Fruchner. He's an AUSA assistant United States attorney out of the Eastern District of Washington, where he handles complex criminal fraud and civil false claims act matters. Uh, his cases have returned billions of dollars to the U.S. Treasury. His entire legal career has been devoted to public service uh, including when he came straight out of law school at the University of Maryland. He went to the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. He spent uh, nearly a decade at Maine Justice in the civil fraud section, uh, spent some time as a healthcare fraud coordinator in the Western District of Wisconsin, and is now Assistant United States Attorney in the Eastern District of Washington. He has a, He's a father. He's the owner of a dog named Cato the Younger. Uh, Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Uh, we also have uh, Cleveland Lawrence III. Cleve is uh, one of my good friends. He was also someone I hired many, many years ago at Taxpayers Against Fraud, where he served in various ro- roles, including in my current role as executive director. Uh, he's now a partner, Marion Scalet. He's co-chair of the firm's whistleblower rights practice group. He was with Taxpayers Against Fraud from 2008 to 2016, uh, went into private practice in 2016, uh, he now serves on the President's Council of Taxpayers Against Fraud. He got a bachelor's degree from Georgetown, law degree from GW, and is also a dad. So welcome to today's show. Uh, glad to have you on as we talk about this case involving Bechtel and AACOM that settled last year. These are two uh, Department of Energy contractors. Uh, this case uh, that we're going to talk about settled for 5775 million dollars. Uh, Dan, let's start with you. Uh, what are the basic allegations uh, that came to light in this case? Sure. So um, just to go into a, a very hopefully brief um, historical background. Uh, so the Hanford nuclear site uh, is where all of this uh, took place. Uh, the Hanford site is a very large um, uh, site in uh, southeast Washington state. Um, near the Tri-Cities in in Washington. Uh, During World War II, the Hanford site uh, played a critical role in the Manhattan Project. Um, Plutonium that was produced at the Hanford site during World War II ultimately was um, used in the uh, Fat Man bomb that was detonated over Nagasaki uh, that helped end that Second World War. Not long after World War II, um, the Army, uh, which had operated uh, the Hanford site during the war, uh, turned control uh, of uh, Hanford over to the newly created Atomic Energy Commission, which later then became the Department of Energy. 
Um, for the next four decades, really until the late 80s, uh, Hanford was uh, used to produce uh, plutonium um, that was incorporated into our nuclear weapons arsenal uh, for Cold War purposes. Um, so essentially between the late 40s and the late 80s, um, that was the primary purpose of Hanford. Most of the plutonium that was um, used in uh, nuclear weapons um, that were being created by the U.S., which, of course, was in an arms race with uh, the Soviet Union at the time, uh, was made at Hanford. Uh, in the late 80s, uh, the Department of Energy uh, essentially shut down um, the production uh, part of Hanford and started what has been the you know, biggest, costliest, uh, most difficult uh, environmental uh, cleanup project in history. And the reason that I say that is because the plutonium process created very large quantities of some very nasty stuff, um, in particular, um, what we call mixed radioactive and hazardous waste. So it's radioactive, uh, but it's also hazardous. It has other chemicals, you know, even beyond the radioactivity. So even a Geiger counter doesn't give you a full understanding of the impact um, of this stuff. Um, and this uh, waste was stored in 177 very large underground storage tanks. Um, when I say very large, each of these 177 tanks, I'm told is approximately the size of a football field. Um, and they're, they're all underground. Um, the records that um, were maintained during this uh, Cold War process are not great. So often um, we don't know exactly what's in the tanks until they get opened up. Um, but we know that they you know, contain um, stuff that we, we don't want. <laughs> uh, we don't want out into the public or into the environment. Um, the tanks were originally designed to hold waste for 25 years. Um, and so just thinking about what that means, it means that these tanks, some of them are now decades past their original intended um, life and they're underground. So they're not easily accessible. Um, the groundwater for the Hanford site uh, feeds into the Columbia River, which, of course, passes through a number of heavily populated areas, including, you know, Portland, Oregon, uh, on its way to the Pacific Ocean. So this is a critical and urgent environmental cleanup um, project. Now, some of those original tanks um, have been replaced with newer tanks, uh, but there have been some problems with the newer tanks um, as well. And, you know, moving a football field's worth of radioactive waste from one tank into another tank is not an easy uh, task. It's very difficult. And so that kind of leads us to this project, um, which we call the, the waste treatment plant project. Um, the way that this was designed to work is that um, the Department of Energy contracted with a company, uh, Bechtel, which is uh, historical, uh, historically a construction and engineering uh, company. They were uh, part of the conglomerate that built the Hoover Dam. So they have a long history of, you know, large complex construction uh, projects. And in this case, the Department of Energy uh, contracted with Bechtel to design and build um, a waste treatment plant, a, a facility that would essentially be capable of taking the waste out of these underground storage tanks and immobilizing it, uh, putting it through a high temperature a chemical and physical process that would essentially turn the um, the radioactive sludge, for lack of a better uh, term, into a stable glass form, which won't leach into the groundwater. You know, if you can kind of imagine um, like uh, sand that's contaminated with something, well, if you can turn that sand into glass, then you no longer have to worry about, you know, 
the contaminated sand blowing from you know one place to another place. You don't have to worry about you know water passing through the contaminated sand into the groundwater. You know you've got a stable glass form, which is essentially um, you know something that is immobilized and and no longer threatening to public health and to the environment. Um, Bechtel then uh, contracted with or subcontracted with another company. At the time, the company was called URS. Um, they're now called AECOM. They've been through some corporate um, restructuring for the engineering support um, that would be needed to uh, design and then ultimately actually run this um, particular plant. Um, the waste treatment plant has been under construction by Bechtel and AECOM uh, since 2000. Um, and that includes the design and the build. So the idea of this project was you build, you know, as you design. So this is not a, a situation where you have, you know, complete blueprints and engineering drawings. Everything is done. And then you start uh, building. Um, the Department of Energy decided there just wasn't time to do it that way. And so this is called a design build where different components are designed and then um, built. At least that was the plan. Um, kind of where we are now, the construction started in the early 2000s. Now, of course, it's, you know, 2021. Um, they have um, not completed the plant in the original time frame. Um, and the reality is they're, they're nowhere close to completing um, this particular plant. The Department of Energy is hopeful that it may be partially complete and they may be able to start treating some of the waste um, this decade. But realistically, um, they're they're not close to actually completing this um, plant, and that's kind of the situation that um, we're we're in, and that's sort of where um, the backdrop of of this particular investigation. So, speaking of waste, Clee, I'll, I'll go to you. The allegations that your clients, uh, I guess, reached out to you guys in 2016. Uh, what were some of their concerns about uh, the time overcharging going on allegedly at this plant? Sure. Thanks for, for having me, Jeb. It's good to, to be with you and good to see you too, Dan. I actually, as you mentioned in your intro, was sort of just transitioning away from TAF and into private practice in 2016. So I wasn't present when the, the group of four relators initially came to us with their allegations. Um, we filed that complaint in, in early 2017. So there was a period during which you know, our legal team, led by my my law partner Richard Condit, um, was was sort of taking charge of, of that investigation process, along with our co-counsel out in Washington State um, at the Smith and Lowney firm. So we were sort of the East Coast Washington D.C. team, um, working very closely with the West Coast Washington State team. But at that time, um, our clients had a, a variety of allegations, um, many of which sort of centered around this this key issue of, of timekeeping fraud. Um, Dan alluded to you know, the significant delays that are going on with this project. Um, and you know, many of those delays can be attributed, um, I think, to intentional you know, misconduct that involved manipulating work packages to, to overstaff jobs, um, billing for work that wasn't being completed while workers you know, had nothing to do and were sort of sitting around or you know, finding recreational things to do on the job, um, you know, abusing overtime charges when, when overtime wasn't necessary to complete work, um, and a variety of other timekeeping types of fraud schemes. Um, in addition, you know, our clients had concerns about uh, certain pricing issues um, and other 
safety concerns um, that were a result of, of you know, many of, of the issues with how packages, work packages were being staffed um, inadequately. Uh, they weren't taking into account, you know, safety issues and, and other and other issues that were manifesting themselves with problems on on the site um, that resulted in rework and additional waste and expense to the government. So there was a lot going on that our clients uh, directed us to. We took some time to investigate those allegations and eventually filed a, a whistleblower complaint, a KETAM complaint uh, in 2017. And if I have this right, Dan, I'm trying to follow the timeline here. There was a, a settlement that was announced in November of 2016 uh, involving the same defendants, involving the same projects, different allegations. And then within a few weeks, uh, these four relators are raising allegations involving the same defendants. Do, do you have the timeline right on that? Yeah, I think exactly right. Those allegations, the time frame of those allegations um, was, of course, you know, substantially before uh, 2016. But that was a very serious um, matter that our office uh, handled together with the Department of Energy Office of Inspector General. The allegations in that prior case had to do with the quality of the materials and uh, components that were being um, installed into the waste treatment plant by Bechtel and by AECOM, which, of course, in and of itself is a very serious um, you know, thing. I mean, basically, when you're building a nuclear facility, you can't go to the local hardware store and pick up rebar. All the components have to be quality rated because of the you know, critical importance of you know, this project. And um, you know, those allegations had to do with the quality. They were brought by a different group of whistleblowers. Our office investigated those allegations. We ultimately uh, intervened in the action because we felt like it had merit. And then uh, that uh, matter settled with Bechtel and with AECOM for $125 million. Um, so it, it, it was, um, you know, to use kind of the parlance that, you know, I use in my criminal fraud cases, you know, these guys were repeat offenders, you know, they had a record, it wasn't um, coming out of the blue, you know, the whistleblower allegations in and of themselves were very, very credible. Um, and of course, that's always the most important thing is, you know, how good is the quality of this information? But I think it was also very important to, you know, to myself and the rest of the prosecution team, as well as the U.S. attorney that we had just been through the barrel with these same two contractors on this critically important project. Yeah, you, you mentioned repeat violators uh, of the False Claims Act. Uh, you, in looking at the final settlement, there was a lot of things baked into this settlement that we typically don't see, uh, including this three-year investi independent investigation monitorship that must go on uh, that's paid for by the companies, but they report, of course, to the DOJ. Is that part of the reason why you decided to take some of these, in, in addition to an extensive statement of facts, which the companies admitted to? There's a lot of uh, nuances that are very different here. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, to me, those two things are are both important, but they serve different purposes. You know, the statement of facts, you know, we felt it was really important, the sort of um, standard False Claims Act settlement um, that's concluded by the Department of Justice, you know, has a very short sentence that, you know, it's a no admission um, you know, of liability settlement. Um, and we felt like in this case, both because of the gravity of, you know, these issues, the fact that it was not the first time that we were dealing with these companies and, you know, on this very project, um, and just the, the egregiousness of the conduct, we just felt like it was not appropriate for 
the companies to cut a check and then be able to deny everything and say, well, we didn't do anything, but we just paid this amount, um, you know, to make the government go away. Um, we just didn't feel like that was appropriate in this case. And so what we um, required the contractors to do was um, enter into a lengthy agreed upon statement of facts so that, you know, they had to come to grips with their conduct so that the public could see what happened and wasn't left to speculate as to, well, the government says this, but the contractors say this, and we don't really know, um, you know, what happened. But that that was the statement of fact. Um, the purpose of the independent monitoring was really to make sure this type of thing doesn't happen again on this project. Um, and so, you know, what we agreed with the contractors on, and, and to their credit, they were incredibly supportive uh, of this uh, independent monitorship. Um, the nature of these projects, you know, the amount of space, um, you know, the amount of time, the number of people, just the sheer geographic scope of the site means it's really difficult for, um, you know, any one manager or a government client to really know what's going on all the time. Um, and, you know, the independent monitor isn't a magic bullet to fix that. Um, but we thought it was a really important way of saying, you know, we're going to have somebody was physically present um, on the site, um, who has access to all of the relevant information, you know, time charging information, uh, project planning information, uh, company meetings, access to company personnel, um, who can exercise some independent monitoring for the next three years to make sure that um, the companies have addressed um, this conduct and that it doesn't, um, you know, take place going forward. Because, you know, quite candidly, the people of the Northwest and, and of the, the U.S. just can't afford uh, further delays on this project. This concept of a corporate integrity agreement is very, very common in healthcare world, right? To have a, a them agree to a certain uh, monitorships going forward, uh, very, very common. Eckley, I just add to Dan's comments that as the you know the relators and and, and counsel for the relators team, um, you know we were very. Uh, happy to see that Dan and, and the U.S. Attorney's Office felt that way about this sort of non-monetary piece as well. It was certainly something that our clients were insisting on um, as being part of the resolution of this case. Um, you know, each of them had reported internally, you know, these issues and, and saw that they weren't being adequately addressed. Um, they had each suffered retaliation in response to their internal whistleblowing um, it wasn't lost on any of them that these were, in, in fact, repeat offenders. And so, you know, they wanted some type of additional measures to, to help ensure that not only were the companies deterred by the financial payments they were, you know, they were making over and over again, but that there was some independent means to, to monitor their behavior. So it was important to, I think, to us as well. And, and it was very refreshing to see, um, you know, this tool being used, uh, which, as you mentioned, you know, isn't always used, uh, particularly outside of the healthcare context. And that raises a good point, Cleve, because I, I certainly could see, you know, thinking back over my cases over the years, all of my clients would have loved to see what happened here, right? That it's not about the money. It's about stopping the fraud going forward and making sure that uh, that people have somewhere to go when they recognize something happening, right? That there's somebody that's an independent monitor in this example that they can reach out to. Uh, Dan, do you think this is a model that other uh, U.S. attorneys' offices will start using, or do you think this is a, a one-off given the repeat offender status of the defendants in this case? I can just say for um, for our office, it's definitely um, it's definitely a model. I mean, yeah. even in the settlements that we've concluded 
um, since then, you know, we've been asking ourselves and management's been asking us in every instance, you know, is this something that we should do in this particular case? And if so, uh, great. And if not, um, you know, why not? Um, and it doesn't necessarily fit in every situation. You know, sometimes the project is over. Sometimes, you know, the personnel have changed so much that there's just, you know, it just doesn't make sense. But I think in, in a lot of situations, I think we do need to ask ourselves, like, how are we going to make sure that this type of thing doesn't happen again, um, you know, in every case? We talk about the size of this facility. Uh, I looked it up online. Uh, it's really remarkable. Matter of fact, we should probably include something in the show notes to give people an idea of the scope and the size of this uh, plant uh, out uh, in the Northwest. Uh, the other thing that struck me is in re- re- reading the press release, you know, agents reviewing hundreds of thousands of documents, interviewed dozens of witnesses, cataloged hundreds of hours of video and audio recordings. Um, I- I'm guessing that, Cleve, your clients also played a role uh, along with the agents here. So you had four relators that were helping along in this case. Can you talk about your relators? Sure. They are uh, a mix, a diverse group of folks uh, working at the WTP um, in a variety of capacities um, who all each had, you know, sort of differing pieces of of the puzzle to help us tell the story of of how much of this timekeeping fraud was occurring. Um, And so they were able to form a, a small coalition and eventually, you know, find counsel um, and that eventually led to, to us representing them. Um, they had each also suffered retaliation, and so they sort of commiserated in that way as well. Um, and, and we were fortunate enough to be able to represent them in their individual capacities, um, and they each you know, settled their personal retaliation claims as part of this larger settlement of the Ketam allegations. So you know, it was sort of a holistic approach to um, to serving the whistleblower and all of you know their needs. And they were you know, really extremely instrumental in not only helping us as the legal team get up to speed, um, identify key documents, identify key witnesses and other uh, personnel that we could then refer to Dan. But, you know, we were able to use them um, to present directly to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and they were able to convey some of those messages to the to the government team as well. Um, I think in, in many ways, you know, this was a, a perfect example of the private-public partnership that the False Claims Act, you know, is supposed to, to, to achieve. One of the primary missions of us starting the show was to spotlight uh, the False Claims Act and its ability to go after fraud effectively and efficiently uh, as a vehicle for the common person to, to help the government moving these cases along and also for us to identify those U.S. attorney's offices that we feel like are doing it the right way. Um, so, Dan, in looking at the, the final numbers here, you know, 57 million in a relator share uh, near the maximum amount, uh, can you speak to why the relator share was a little bit higher in this case than some of what we've seen in other cases? We did have it. We had an exceptionally good um, government team on this case. You know, we had uh, terrific case agents, um, you know, some of the best I've ever worked with, uh, Carissa Otero and Adam uh, John Petro. Uh, we're just terrific case agents. Um, you know, my co-counsel uh, on the case, uh, Tyler Tornabene and, and Frida Zimmerman, uh, did an exceptional job. You know, we worked very hard. But the reality is, you know, this is our job. <laughs> when we do it, uh, we get a pat on the back. When, um, when whistleblowers come forward and um, articulate the same concerns, you know, they often get retaliated against. 
advanced. Um, and one thing um, we've seen throughout the nuclear industry and at Hanford is, you know, retaliation against whistleblowers is, uh, I think it's it's rampant. Um, and so, you know, I think it is important that um, we recognize that fact um, because this is not the first, uh, you know, time that, um, you know, we've seen you know, a similar situation where the whistleblowers do everything that you would expect a good employee to do to try to address these issues internally. Um, and yet the response of management is not only not to address them, um, but to retaliate against the individuals who raise the concerns, you know, almost as though they're sending a message to others to say, you know, you better not, uh, you know, rock the boat. Um, and, you know, that, that, that just, that just can't happen. Um, you know, so I think that's an important consideration. You know, I think always when we're talking about, you know, how to assess the appropriate relators share, there are a number of factors. For me, it always comes down to the quality of the information and the contribution of the relators or the whistleblowers in any particular case. You know, where we have um, whistleblowers that are able to come forward, not just with a tip, um, but with, you know, really detailed facts. Um that they can support either with documents or they can point us to documents within the company that we can, um, you know, go subpoena or obtain through a search warrant or, you know, other means, um, you know, that goes a long way. Uh, where we have whistleblowers that provide, you know, what I call uh, affirmative cooperation, um, you know, people that are willing to make calls or wear body wires or do the other things that, you know, sometimes you see on, on TV. Um, you know, all that is part of what we consider in every case. And in this case, I think the uh, four whistleblowers and the agents um, work together, you know, hand in glove really closely, you know, the way that, you know, I think Congress intended when they um, passed the False Claims Act. And so, you know, I think it's only working together can you, um, you know, obtain a, a result, um, you know, like this one. And I, I would also say that it's, it's great to have great uh, whistleblowers. But it's also really important to have good whistleblower attorneys. And in this case, we had both. Um, you know, we had, um, you know, an extremely, um, you know, qualified and, and excellent group of folks, um, you know, Cleve and his team that didn't just dump a bunch of documents on us, um, but really took the time to go through um, the facts with their clients so that they could present them to us in a really organized way that allowed us to, you know, hit the ground running almost right after the tip came in. And so part of what we want to see at the Hanford site and, and in other places is connecting those whistleblowers, you know, with folks like Cleve and his firm as quickly as possible. And so part of what we've tried to do in our district is educate our local, um, you know, employment bar on, you know, here's what to look out for in terms of Central False Claims Act cases. Um, and here's how to leverage the expertise of, you know, nationwide um, bar. I think the Keton practice is, you know, by its it's sort of very nature, you know, nationwide, whereas employment law tends to be fairly, fairly local. But Dan, your, your point about experience, uh, Ketam Council, uh, isn't, isn't lost on us. You know, my, my wife uh, is a fabulous OBGYN, but you don't want her doing your heart surgery. So the same thing in our world, you know, if you, you're uh, looking for an attorney uh, to help out in your false claims act case, you know, our membership includes 500 Ketam attorneys from across the country that aren't dabblers. These are people who are focused on false claims act. Um, Cleve, uh, without a doubt, and I know this is true because we've heard from people, uh, there's going to be somebody who is watching this show or listening on the podcast who is going to work every single day working for a company that is uh, not turning square corners when it comes to the government. Um, what would you say to that individual? 
Uh, I'd say a few things to that person. Um, I think that uh, whistleblowers have sort of an innate sense of, of the environment that they're working in, and they know, um, you know, sort of innately on some level whether or not uh, an internal complaint is going to result in an action being taken or result in, in sort of, you know, outing them as the squeaky wheel that needs to be dealt with. Um, so to the extent that a whistleblower fears that they may be retaliated against, I would absolutely, you know, caution them to, to make sure they're documenting all of their, their processes for re reporting internally and the reactions that they're getting um, to those internal reports. Uh, to the extent that a whistleblower wants to pursue a potential KETAM claim, um, as Dan mentioned, they, they really do need to have experienced uh, false claims at counsel. Um, in fact, you know, sort of standing in the shoes of the United States of America by filing one of these lawsuits requires a whistleblower to have counsel. Um, whistleblowers can represent their own interests and be their own lawyers, but but they can't be the government's lawyers. Um, so so that would be my next piece of advice is um, before you know sort of pursuing this this tactic, um, you, you definitely need to consult with someone who knows the nuances of the False Claims Act and can adequately represent all of your interests. Um, my firm, Mary and Scallet, uh, you know, has been experienced in representing whistleblowers in all aspects of, of whistleblowing um, and, uh, you know, certainly has seen lots of folks from different walks of life and different industries, um, including, you know, this, this sort of non-traditional use of the False Claims Act at the Hanford site. Um, and so, you know, someone like us, I think, would be a good person for them to consult with. So Dan, there's a million reasons why we decided to showcase this case. Uh, I mean, 107, 177 tanks the size of a football field. You sold me there. Um, but why, beyond dollars and cents, why did this case, why did this settlement matter so much? Well, I think there's two reasons. I mean, the first is, again, I, I just think, you know, the, this is a critical um, project. It's critical for environmental health. It's critical for public health. Um, you know, this needs to be completed. Um, the taxpayers have spent billions of dollars, um, you know, to remedy a very urgent situation. Um, and I'm not putting all of this on the contractors or on this case, but the situation is not getting uh, addressed as quickly as it should be. Um, that's just the reality. And so when we have allegations that, um, you know, contractors are charging for time that's not being worked and, you know, people are you know, sitting around, not because they're lazy or they're hiding from their bosses, but because they literally are not being given work to do. And they're not allowed to go do work unless they have a specific instruction to do something. You know, that's something that we're going to take very, very seriously uh, because it's not about money. It's about how quickly can this project um, get completed and, um, you know, how quickly can we, you know, get to this urgent uh, business of cleaning up this site and protecting public health and, and the environment, as well as the health of the workers. Um, you know, workers at the site um, are exposed to things that most people don't want to be exposed to. And the longer this project goes on, the more exposure those workers are going to have. Uh, that is not right. Um, you know, the project needs to be completed as quickly as possible. Um, so, um, you know, the, I think that would be the first thing is just how critical this project is and how seriously we take those three things. You know. Um, uh, workers' health, uh, public health, and and the environment. Um, the the second you know thing that I'd point to in terms of what makes this case significant, I think, is because um, you know unlike 
um, you know, some of the False Claims Act elements that you see out there, this was not a, you know, cut a check and walk away um, situation. Um, you know, we had uh, two very well-represented, very large corporate companies um, that, um, you know, that actually um, went through the process of publicly admitting to their conduct. Uh, I'm not going to say they were excited about doing that, but I, I give them credit for stepping up and, and doing it and engaging meaningfully um, about those facts and about the conduct that happened uh, on their watch. I think that's very significant because you don't often see that except in a, um, you know, in a criminal resolution. We're, we're using them more and more, um, but this type of detailed admission um, by these types of defendants is just not something that we see um, every day. Um, and then I, you know, I also think that the monitoring, if it um, works the way that we're intending it and, and the way that I believe the contractors are intending it, I think that will go a long way to facilitating um, this project going forward. At the end of the day, that's everyone's goal is to complete this um, so that um, the public health and environmental health of um, the Pacific Northwest can be protected. I'd, I'd just add that I think, uh, you know, we traditionally see the False Claims Act's application in the healthcare realm or, you know, sort of more directly linked to defense contracting and the, and the really big dollars uh, that the government spends on those types of programs. And, and here we have a settlement involving, you know, what, what is essentially an environmental cleanup um, service, and and I, you know, I think it's really important for for us to recognize that the False Claims Act has a very wide reach. The government has its its money and its tentacles and and so many different programs and is spending, you know, billions of dollars on projects like this. And and the False Claims Act um, is a is a useful tool to recovering fraud on on these projects as well as in the more traditional realms. Well, Dan, I wanted to acknowledge you and, and Tyler and the entire government team and Cleve and Rich and, and the Relators Council and certainly your four Relators uh, for showing us all how the public-private partnership can work and should work. Uh, and I certainly want to acknowledge uh, you, Dan, and, and, and your entire team in structuring this settlement in a way that will have a lasting impact beyond uh, a check. Um, so thank you both for joining us. Make sure you join us next week when we dive further into the world of the False Claims Act on the next episode of Fraud in America. If you believe you've witnessed fraud against the government at your job or want to learn more about these important laws to combat fraud, visit fraudinamerica.com. On our website, you can find whistleblower lawyers, blogs from these expert attorneys, and more. You can also find a transcript of today's show, show notes, a way to contact our team, and a way to chip in to make sure we can keep bringing you the latest on fraud. This episode was edited and produced by Rachel Brooks, and our theme music is by Connor Chaos. A big thanks to our staff and researchers of Jeb White, James King, Emma Bass, Jackie DeMar, Kate Scanlon, Brian Markovitz, and Max Boltman. You can learn more about them at fraudinamerica.com slash team. Fraud in America is a project of Taxpayers Against Fraud Education Fund.